I proposed you know, a tax on divorce, syntax on divorce. For your net worth's over half a million dollars, you got to pay 10% of net worth to the state to compensate society for the damage done to the institution of marriage by your divorce. Welcome back to the Kevin Roberts Show. You know, we're a year plus into this show, and we have a really good combination in terms of guests of people who are elected officials, policy folks, and also intellectuals. And and rarely in that, that last category do we have intellectuals who actually do things. No, that's just a joke as a recovering <laughs> academic. This, this guest this week is a friend of almost 10 years. I met him when I was president of Wyoming Catholic College. He was very friendly in helping to elevate this, the, the story that we had, which was rejecting federal student loans and grants. He even had me over to have dinner at his apartment in New York. And since then, we have kept up, and now we conspire to make the conservative movement great again, which is to say to make it more thoughtful. Rusty Reno, editor of First Things, I just have to say this, and it's not because I'm too much of a fanboy. It's great to see you sitting in that chair. I'm a, I'm a big <laughs> fan. Well, thanks for having me. It's great to be on and, your show. And, well, thank you. Thanks for being here, and thanks for being a longtime friend of Heritage. Thanks for all the years you put in at Wyoming Catholic College, too. It's a great, wonderful story, that school. It's, thank uh, you. As a broken-down old rock climber, obviously I have a, a great fond love for Wyoming Catholic College. It's kind of Outward Bound meets the Latin Mass. It's <laughs> <laughs> a great description, which is to say it's it's sort of perfect. But uh, Rusty, you are both in your 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 public work, but I also have the privilege of saying this privately. Someone who has the gift of counsel, you're very thoughtful. Uh, you and I don't always agree on things, and I th that's a shocking I, to even that, imagine. Yeah, I know. Well, but yeah. you seem so intelligent, <laughs> and of course, you would agree with me on everything. It, it, exactly. <laughs> yeah. If you haven't figured this out, this might be part one of three or four part episodes. <laughs> but all that to say, um, if someone happens not to be familiar with your work, they happen not to be familiar with first things. They really do need to be, because I have learned even when I and our differences of opinion are minor, relatively speaking. When I, I don't quite see things the way you do, I read either something that you wrote or you're very good at suggesting things for me to read, at least to have a more comprehensive understanding of an issue. And, and honestly, that's been really pivotal for me, especially mm. in this role, and uh, really grateful for you. So hopefully that's enough of a plug for first things for us to be able to move on. We can move on. <laughs> okay, sounds good. Well, you know, I am a Southerner. You're not quite. And, and that means that I'm fascinated by people's stories and how you you got to do what you're doing. You mm. are a fellow academic, as I said. Recovering like you. Yes, that is. Uh, that is true. Uh, you are a theologian, mm -hmm. a philosopher, very insightful thinker. How is it that you became editor of First Things? It's funny. When I was a graduate student, my you could ask Bruce Marshall, one of my colleagues from grad school, yeah, Rusty, he was never really a scholar. <laughs> you know, gets too bored too quickly uh, with topics and a bit of a gadfly. And so it wasn't surprising that when I become a young professor, I, I kind of gravitated towards writing more broadly for a wider audience. And one thing led to another, and Richard John Newhouse, the founder of First Things Magazine, sort of took me under his wing, published a lot of my stuff, drew me into the First Things circle. And one thing led to another, and... You know, next thing you know, I'm editor of First Things. And you've been there a while now. Dozen years. What is the thrust of First Things for someone who is not aware? We are the voice of religiously serious people 
who want to shape the future of our country. And, and put, of simply all, put. And, and of all religious backgrounds, right? Uh, we know we're, because Christianity is the, by far and away the dominant religion in the United States, we have a very much a Christian voice. But we have regular Jewish writers and uh, the occasional Muslim writer. So our, our, our the governing conviction, what draws people into our circle is the conviction that an ever deeper obedience to God is a, is to f- fulfills our humanity, makes us more fully human. Contrary to the modern secular view that um, to obey anyone other than yourself is somehow to be diminished. We have the opposite view. So if you're on that team, we'd, we'd love to have you as a reader of First Things. And this, this probably <laughs> explains why so many people at Heritage are First Things devotees and why you and, and so many of, of your writers, your staff, are, are close friends with many people here at Heritage. You know, I think it's not just that many of us share a common religious faith, but conservatism and what and progressivism are increasingly, uh, well, we see, we see polarization as a term we hear a lot about our country, but it's not just a kind of red state, blue state, but it's also a kind of deep difference about, again, what, what you know, uh, Roger Scruton would emphasize that conservatism is rooted in gratitude. And the first disposition of gratitude is to honor and, and, and obey. I mean, not slavishly. We shouldn't obey our nation's traditions the way we would obey God because our nation is not sacred in that sense. But, you know, everything we receive, our family heritages, our, um, you know, the towns we grew up in and then our country, these are, these are gifts and that we should honor them. And the progressive view typically is um, the progressive is loyal to the future. <laughs> the, the <unknown. laughs> Whereas the conservative is loyal to the past. Again, not slavishly, but recognizing that there, there's a, pi- a proper piety towards our constitution. I think you can see that in the conservative movement, strong um, piety towards the constitution. Um, I think that's, um, that's hugely important. It can be a unifying thing in our society as a whole. It was until recently a unifying um, piety between people in the Democratic Party and people in the Republican Party. One of the things that's disturbing is the increasing skepticism about many people on the left about our country's founding, founding documents. And not, not just the 1619 Project, but, but other strands of progressivism. What do you, I just want to key in on that for, for a moment because I, well, I disagree wholeheartedly with the, the premise of the 1619 Project. And, and as, as you know, and I think most of the audience does, that happens to be my area of academic expertise is mm-hmm. the slave trade and, and early American uh, cultures, including black culture. So I have some academic credibility to say that. What concerns me even more than that are the other progressive strands that are critiques of the, the, the founding of the Constitution in particular. And it seems as if, and I don't mean this to be a pejorative, but to be descriptive, that they are very Marxist in their, at their core. Given your philosophical, theological training, is that correct or is, is, is the critique better placed somewhere else? I, I'm skeptical of uh, the Lord of the Explanations. the one explanation to rule them all. See, this is what you always remind me of. (laughs) Robert, stay away from one cause. (laughs) Yes. Uh, And and, uh, because you get 
the uh, attack on the um, Electoral College and also hmm. the United States Senate that that can be rooted in a, a kind of a, a radical American, you know, Walt Whitman, I mean, yeah, Walt Whitman and this kind of, uh, you know, uh, radical democracy um, sentiment that runs through our, our country. And, and so it, there is obviously a kind of um, Marxism that sees politics purely as a um, political institutions, purely as instruments of power. And I think that certainly affects our, our society and the effect of that over the last two or three generations in the universities for sure. But we should always remember that there's, there are, a lot of our diseases are, are native to our country. Uh, every, I mean, it's the old adage, every country's got a lot of ruin in it. And, and so I think we should beware as conservatives ascribing all of our ills to alien influences. Um, John Dewey, a very American figure, a very problematic figure. How so? Oh, because he demonizes, he, if you read Reconstruction and Philosophy, his 1919 book, basically says we, don't, we shouldn't argue with people who are not progressives. We should, they should be described as medieval. Now that changes, later it becomes, they're frightened of change, they're fearful of diversity, um, these are the sorts Sounds of- Sounds kind of familiar, Rusty. These are, these are the f ways in which um, you know, our, our liberal progressive establishment refuses to engage in substance and simply diagnoses disagreement as, as really rooted in some kind of pathology. Which I think we can look and say, look, wait a minute. The, the, the Senate and the um, Electoral College you know, we can kind of spell out the political philosophy behind that in terms of maintaining a consensus in the country between different regions and preventing California and New York from completely dominate, dominating our, our uh, national politics. Uh, so we can kind of argue, we don't say to the progressive, you're just a pathological, you know, um, figure. But they're very, they're, they consistently describe our positions as rooted in pathologies. So one of the things I try to do with this show is offer some solutions. And, and some of them are kind of large-scale policy solutions. We might get into some of those. Oh, good. I like, you know, we, yeah, it's so important. I, I, it, you know, bad things are bad, bad, bad. You know, wokeism, bad, bad, bad. Okay, I already know that. Um, so, okay, so help me. What are we going to do even, now? <laughs> even, even the natural pessimist in you is willing to talk about solutions? Oh, oh, no, I, I think, so. okay, I, that was good. when I first took over at First Things, I would come into the office and I'd gather my staff and go, okay, I know what I'm against. Remind me, what am I for? <laughs> I, I had that conversation with some, some congressmen today, good guys and gals, and I said, so I'm, I'm apparently more than I realized to your point, perhaps emphasizing too much all of the problems. And then someone, one of them asked a very thoughtful question. I said, you see, there's an example of something we could be for. And they all looked at me and realized, oh, I haven't articulated what we should be for. You know, it's, it's a real disease, especially in this town, even for those of us who are kind of natural optimists. But you see, I don't even know what I was going to ask. No, that's not true. I was going to ask you for a, a, a recommendation for reading. Maybe it's an essay in First Things. Maybe mm. it's a book, especially for younger people, talking about folks who are in their 20s and 30s. Maybe they work in D.C. They're certainly interested in policy ideas if they're in the audience of this show. 
to help them stay away from the the, the natural inclination to despair because things they think, believe that things are so bad. Is there some some book, some essay, some some discipline that you have to stay away from those depths? Because by the nature of what First Things writes, you're often dealing with heavy hitting, hard hitting stuff. Well, I mean, I did my graduate study in theology, and uh, the yes of um, of of God's love for us is obviously should be a constant source of encouragement for any religious person. So I would strongly urge young people in D.C. to, you know, nurture in your reading um, readings of things that that articulate eternal truths that transcend the struggles of our time. Um, and I and I think that can be that can be very helpful in literature. It's really important to, to, to read and think about things that are lovable. Um, so when we put the magazine together, I try in every issue to have something that commends to our readership. This here, this is worthy of your time and attention. This is worthy of your devotion. So I'll, I'll piggyback on that, that great reminder and, and revealed a little conversation you and I were having before we started recording, which is a practice that each of us learned the other keeps, which is every second or third book is is a work of fiction and hopefully great fiction, one of the, the great books. But because when we're assigned those, at least I can speak for you and me, when we were assigned those in our respective schools, uh, dare I say we, we weren't mature enough to, at least I wasn't, appreciate Brothers Karamazov, which I'm rereading now. Um, the, the, the depth of, of religious lesson, virtue, but also considering its its place in Russia, time and place. Mm-hmm. And from this historian is, is crucial. In other words, it's great that people read a lot of nonfiction. You know, both of our jobs sort of right. depend on people. As an doing author it. of nonfiction, I hope we still read nonfiction. <laughs> I'm not suggesting hundred percent fiction, but just saying that it really I guess what I'm I'm uh, driving at to, to think about T. S. Eliot here is imaginativeness. Well you know, we can only vote for what we can imagine. And so the politics of the imagination turns out to be more important than the politics of politics. Um, and this is part, again, this is part of what one reason that progressivism has had such a powerful influence on, um, on, on Western societies over the last 200 years because it imagines a different future uh, for us. Now, part of our job as conservatives has been to uh, be the voice of reason against these utopian fantasies, and that's an important role. But I do think, um, you know, uh, one function of uh, reading literature, often literature, is to um, uh, capture lost worlds, things that we've lost, and we try to imagine what would it mean to for our society to recover a... Um, a very strong culture of marriage. Uh, so, you know, and I mean, I'll be controversial here. I think, oh, please. Well, I think the the rain, what I call the Rainbow Reich, is um, is the sort of the most powerful cultural force on the left. And wh- what are what do what are folks who are watching this show? What what do you really want if you're a young person in our public? how do we deal publicly with homosexuality? I, I'm not sure I can answer that question. Um, I don't like 
the trajectory we're on. And I think when we when we sing hosannas to the gay lifestyle, um, we actually undermine um, healthy young people's healthy young impulses. And okay, drag queen being the obvious example mm-hmm. of that. All right, so fine. Well, help me think. Like, what would our society look like, um, given that we've already crossed many Rubicons? Um, so, how can we restore the proper? How can we make normal normal again? Um, and, and what would it look like in, in 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 family life? What would it look like in civic life? And it and it's telling that even encouraging that conversation is is uh, out of bounds in in America's political sphere. Yeah, yeah, we're we're. We're kind of, we have to play defense at best. And even then, I think uh, national politicians, you have to skirt these issues having to do with the LGBT agenda. Um, and, and uh, okay, look, I, am, I, have, I have a lot of respect for the men and women who are in practical politics, and they have to win public office. And we're not going to get anywhere unless we have people in Washington, D.C., in legislative and, and executive roles who can actually do things for the better. Uh, but I'm not running for public office. You're not running for public office. You know, most people listening and watching are not running for public office. We have permission to think and talk about these things. Uh, and we should. Um, if we don't, then we won't. We have to have a vision of the future uh, is my, my constant refrain. And so we, you know, we published something recently in repealing Title IX from the Education Act, and it has to do with uh, non-discrimination of women and educational opportunity. Um, and it's a statement, and we had another one about uh, defeating the equity regime. What, what kind of Supreme Court cha- uh, cases need to be overturned to really take some of the, um, the, some of the sting out of a lot of the um, human rights campaign legal strategies? Uh, a lot of that thinking needs to be done by the conservative movement. What is our legislative agenda to restore sanity to our country, to de-escalate polarization. I think the Arizona school choice, the $7,000 per child per family, effectively universal school choice, we should be behind that. It's a good thing simply to, you know, uh, give, give all families an option other than failed public schools. But it's also politically, we need to argue that this is a way of de-escalating the culture war. Uh, it's a kind of radical federalism. Uh, and, you know, w- this might lower the temperature. We don't have to fight about schools. Um, and the less things we fight about, maybe we can heal as a country. Yeah, it seems like that's that's the, the only path toward healing is to have fewer things that we're fighting over. And the last two and a half years, three years in particular, we, we've been... At, at one another's throats in a few school board meetings, quite literally. Yes, yes. Over over this issue, and while you and I are squarely on one side, that that the side of common sense parents who probably are apolitical, merely trying to protect their kids, we also know that as as a as a civil society, that's not good. Right, and another area in civil rights law, Barry Goldwater was very worried about the public accommodation element of the Civil Rights Act of 1965. And, you know, if I'd have been a, a senator at that time, I, I would have liked to have think I would have voted for that legislation. Um, however, he was not mistaken to be concerned because what public accommodation doctrine is, it makes the enti- every aspect of society is now open for political uh, battle. Um, and, 
and uh, this is this is uh, this has borne a lot of bad fruit over the last thirty years, uh, as the um, LGBT movement has taken possession of the civil rights doctrine to advance its causes. And and again, I'm not a I'm not a law professor, and I you know I wouldn't I'm not to be trusted to try to sort out the technicalities of this issue. But we as conservatives need to think about that. Again, it's very politically explosive. You know, you got the president denouncing Jim Crow uh, 2.0 and semi-fascism, and anytime you touch some of these sacred cows of of um, of the last of the post-war era broadly, um, you run risks politically, but we can afford to run those risks. I can afford to run those risks. And somebody needs to move a, to be be at the forefront to suggest in a spirit of charity without being, you know, extreme just for the sake of being extreme, but uh, trying to think through what's what the country really needs culturally to move to a better place. And what's the role of of politics in that? You know, by that I'm I'm the, the underlying implication is that politics is downstream from culture. They interact. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I, I tell people is growing up on the Gulf Coast where I've seen the 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 bayou in my home city flow backwards during hurricane season. <laughs> that's that a great, it, the perfect, a perfect they, metaphor. They, I mean, in other words, <laughs> the default to, to my way of thinking is that politics generally is downstream from culture. And I'd say that to encourage people that not all solutions are in Washington or in your state capital, yes, but in our communities, right? That's kind of the Burkean uh, Tocquevillian coming out. But we are mistaken in this era of conservatism, if we're we're just sort of leaving as as in a different toolbox, the ability to use politics to affect cultural change. It, politics is a cultural act. I mean, Aristotle saw political life as at the center of Athenian culture. So, and you know, I think one of the one of the good achievements of modern liberal, understood in a very broad sense, liberal dem- democratic culture, is to. Uh, Make politics, you know, bring down the temperature, make it less central. But making less central doesn't make it irrelevant <laughs> to culture. And I'll give you an example. You know, we've we've we have spent a huge amount of money since the end of World War II to amp up American higher education. I mean, everything from the charitable tax deduction to student loans, GI Bill, et cetera, et cetera, tremendous grants for science and so on and so forth. I think it's obvious to those who watch the show that the American university culture now is does a lot of damage to our society. It is a source of a great deal of harm. So, all right, you've got an existing system of public support. Maybe it needs to, maybe we need to de-emphasize higher ed. I'm not saying cut funding or something like that, but maybe reduce. Uh, President Obama wanted to have uh, free community college education. And I did a kind of back of the envelope you know, the top 50 endowments have about 90% of all the endowment dollars in the United States. And if you did a kind of pro, a progressive 5% endowment tax down to 1%, I did about my calculations, you could generate the $50 billion over the course of a decade that Obama thought would be the cost of free community college education. Community colleges are not the source of problem in the United States. Our fancy pants, arrogant elite universities are a source of problems in our country. Why are we, as citizens of this country, subsidizing collectively this problem, these problem childs? Um, so I thought, you know, we should have endowment, and we did in the uh, in the the uh, 2017 um, 
uh, bill that the President Trump signed, there is a little tiny little endowment tax uh, in in that bill. Uh, and I thought, well, good for, and they the universities tried and tried and tried to get it repealed in the Inflation Reduction Act, and they failed. And I say, well, good for progressive Democrats, because they stood in the way of that happening, as well as people on our side. Uh, but there, there's a chance for there to be some bi- left-right bipartisanship. Why are we overspending for the top 1% of high school graduates? We should be spending a lot more on vocational education, community colleges, nursing programs, et cetera, et cetera. And it would seem, ironically, that at least the that one part of Bernie Sanders' political platform actually has some merit. By that, just put Bernie Sanders off to the side as a presidential candidate, as, as, as someone the right never wants to work with. But that's precisely what I'm getting at when, when at Heritage we're saying, we've got to reimagine what this next era of conservative reform looks like. It's not that it's going to be unmoored from our principles, quite the opposite. It's going to be as tethered as ever. It's that it's going to reflect society writ large as opposed to that top 1%. Hence, I I, I just love the language of of looking at policy through the lens of the everyday American. That's a lead-in, Rusty, to something I've been wanting to ask you. I actually ask you this a lot, but I haven't asked this year in 2023. (laughs) And, And that is, where's the conservative movement going? Oh gosh, wow. Um, if you have a crystal ball, uh, you could be a very popular man in Washington, D.C. if you could get, <laughs> if you actually knew where the conservative movement is going. We have a tension where the country is, uh, um, we had a left right, um, center left, center right consensus, I think it really emerged during the Clinton administration. NAFTA, the WTO, uh, big intellectual property uh, um, uh, legal transformations that laid the foundations for the tech industry's huge success, uh, and many other measures. They were by bi- repeal of Dodd Frank. I mean, repeal of uh, Glass Steagall. These were these were left right consensus about how to deal with um, the end of the Cold War and how to and how to uh, su- sustain America's uh, and really build upon America's global uh, 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 hegemony superiority. And uh, they weren't stupid ideas, but it's not the same world. It's not the same society. And we look at America today, and the biggest, I think, problem is failure to flourish among the median American. And it's a cultural failure to flourish, failure to get married, failure to have, you know, be able to have raised children in an intact family, drug abuse, uh, rampant addiction to pornography, and, and, and now we legalize marijuana. What's our policy response to opioid overdose death, legalized marijuana. That shows you how crazy our political sense of consensus has become. Um, and then there's the economic side in terms of um, you know, the China shock when China joined the WTO, lost of manufacturing jobs, um, and many other factors. And so I think both parties are in a um, time of um, anxious redefinition. Democratic Party is in a huge dilemma which is that they are the party of the billionaires. They're the billionaire party. So billionaires break basically nine to one Democrat. And, uh, you know, the California is this, whatever, the sixth largest economy in the world, and it is a one-party progressive state. So how is, it, how is the Democratic Party going to be able to res- actually respond to uh, this failure to flourish among the median American? I think it's going to be hard for them to do it. Uh, Republican Party... We've inherited, I think, ment- a mentality or, or policy menu for a very different era. And it was, you know, the Reagan era, 
baby boomers, you know, just coming into their prime to be, to really, really go like gangbusters, you know, remove the impediments to business formation, entrepreneurship. It made a lot of sense. And they had all the social capital behind them too, baby boomers, you know, growing up in the conformist 1950s. Um, it was a great benefit to them. So I think you, you see that we as a party on the, on the, on the right uh, need to, we're, we're in ag, there's an agonizing struggle, debate, battle in the party over, over how to adjust to the new challenges facing our country, and not just domestically, but in terms of foreign policy also. There's a huge battle there too. And, and, that, and again, I don't think people really disagree. I think people on the left and the right, there's some people on the left that are anti-American, definitely. And some of them are, are in the United States Congress and they're anti-American, shame on them. But the vast majority of people in the Democratic Party and, the, and certainly obviously Republican Party are very concerned that um, the United States of America protect its sovereignty and, um, and, and maintain our ability to deter all competitors on the global stage. I think that's a consensus. Now, how do we do it? Is, uh, and you, so I, I guess I, this is the optimist in me and also the middle class flourishing. Uh, you know, the Biden administration has made this a priority. Um, the Inflation Reduction Act's uh, authorizing spending tens of, hundreds of billions of dollars. Now they tied it to their green agenda, which I think is, can be, is gonna come back to bite us in the rear as we lose our, our kind of diverse energy sources and become more vulnerable um, uh, and on the energy front. But still, they're spending a lot of money um, on projects that will actually employ high school educated Americans. Um, and then the uh, loan forgiveness agenda. Again, I think it's a kind of grotesque violation of constitutional principles to spend hundreds of billions of dollars without congressional authorization. But you got to hand it to the administration saying, okay, well, and then they, what do they do? They try to help out the median American um, and do it in a way that rewards the most, the most kind of committed constituency uh, of their own party, which is higher ed. <laughs> like, they're good at what they they're do. They're good at what they do. They are, they're yeah. very good at what they do. And I don't suggest that, you know, uh, we on the right should be cynical, um, but we do, it takes a plan to beat a plan. You and know? to that point, the, I wanted to ask you about China and in and of itself as a threat to the Chinese Communist Party, to the United States, the, I believe, Heritage believes the United States must confront them and hopefully not in a military way, at least directly, but be prepared to do so, which we're not. But this is the, is, welcome your feedback on that, but the real point of raising that point is I think that if we can summon the political will to do so, that confrontation in an economic sense, sort of, of uh, mental sense, that we have this external threat that is existential, to use a word that's overused, will be rather unifying for us domestically. And the plan ought to look like things that return American manufacturing to America, that update the model of education, K-12 and higher ed, that does things that are heterodox to libertarians, which is forbidding the sale of real estate to people affiliated with the CCP. That's, that's starting to sound like not just a governing conservative agenda, but one that a really smart political candidate, whoever he or she may be in 2024, could use in a presidential run that begins to unify this country. I agree. 
the Democratic Party, it's very again painful for them because their their financial sources, Wall Street, Hollywood, Silicon Valley, are I mean, they are the most globalized part of our economy. They have the most to lose by disengagement with China. And, um, but nevertheless, um, this administration is pushing on those interests. Um, and I, I am encouraged by this. Again, we didn't need to fight with them about how to do it right. Um, but it's a, it's a blessing that we don't have to fight about with them about whether to do it. Um, and that's because I'm a bit of an American optimist. Uh, I'm, I'm very much a one. As yeah, you know. I'm an American optimist. And I think that uh, uh, one of the things that troubles me about the progressive left is that it doesn't, we've kind of given up on the idea of a planned economy. I mean, it's not really, even the Chinese don't, you know, they want to control it, but they don't want to plan it. Uh, we have a bit of that on our left too, obviously. But instead, we are experimenting with a planned culture. We're going to have DEI officers at every level of every organization to micromanage people's um, relationships, uh, professionally, socially. Like, wow, I mean, this is doomed. I mean, if you, th if you think it's hard to have a planned economy, it's impossible to have a planned cult a culture. And I, and I see this as... Um, uh, part of the, that's the cultural Marxism, if you will, of our time. It's the notion that we can sort of seize uh, our, we can re-engineer even what it means to be a man or a woman. Um, and somehow we can impose this and educate young people, propagandize them into believing all these things. And I, I see that as the, that's the CCP influence on our own society. Uh, we saw that with you know trying to control the administration, controlling messaging through Twitter and putting, you know, we now know about all these uh, back and forth between the administration and and these social media companies, and and you know you can understand the impulse and et cetera et cetera, but it all reflects this technocratic impulse that you can kind of control culture, uh, hate speech and all these sorts of things can become. We can have laws that get rid of evil. I mean, wow, <laughs> never in the history of humanity. Uh, this is where being a religious person is helpful. We have a, we should have laws that punish things that are unjust, but oof, getting rid of evil, that's not really in the cards for, for, for any human efforts in this world. King, and on the, the last part of that excellent point, what are the repercussions of the declining religiosity in the United States on our culture and politics? Loss of a sense of the tragic limitations, I think, of human life. I think the so-called greatest generation, the men who, uh, you know, fought World War II. We had presidents who were every president from Dwight Eisenhower to uh, George H. W. Bush served in World War II. Um, they had a tragic sense. They were they were American idealists, obviously, but it was tempered by this sense that you know uh, the realities of human life are hard and cannot be cruel. And um, so they were less susceptible to utopian notions. Whereas I think loss of religiosity, uh, religiosity encourages that sense of the fallen character of, of the human person. And so whereas you're paradoxically hopeful, but nevertheless kind of expect the worst. <laughs> and I think the loss of religiosity makes our country, especially our leadership class, um, much more susceptible to, to utopian fantasies.
And that's obviously can be extremely destructive politically. That's the source of tyranny. Yes, indeed it is. So I want to lean into that excellent response and, and pose the, what will have to be the final question because of time. We'll have to have you back. <laughs> You've got a train to catch. I've got another interview to do. But over the years, we hope to have you back many times. You've already mentioned that you're optimistic. So I don't have to ask you that question. I ask some guests. Rather, I want to be kind of specific about it and, and invite you into the world of the practical for just a couple minutes. Fast forward 10 years. 2033. America is not only around, but is in better shape by every metric than it was in 2023. Mm. What are the two or three things in your assessment that we will have begun to get right that contributed to that turning of the corner? You know, family uh, and education strike me as just two, they're closely related, inter, uh, interrelated. Uh, it's hard to have a functional country if you don't have functional families. It's, uh, it's really that simple. And uh, it's hard to have a functional citizenry if you don't have a functional educational system. And as I said earlier, um, we, we've way overemphasized uh, college for everybody. It was always a kind of, it was part of that baby boomer win-win. Everybody's going to be, go to college. Everybody's going to be a computer programmer. Um, so I think those are the two areas. It's hard to know. I mean, and those are not very, I mean, education is, a, is something we can deal with in policy. Family's hard. Um, can't force people to get married. Shouldn't try to. Um, can't force people to have children. Can, you shouldn't try to. Um, so, but you can, we, we need to do, we need to make some bold experiments in making changes. I've proposed, you know, a tax on divorce. Syntax on divorce for your net worth's over half a million dollars. You got to pay 10% of net worth to the state to compensate society for the damage done to the institution of marriage by your divorce. Now, people say you can never pass such a thing, but who ever imagined you could get make, pass laws preventing people from smoking in restaurants? Uh, you know, when I was a teenager, somebody told me we we're going to have laws that nobody's going to be, you weren't going to be able to smoke anywhere except, you know, furtively on street corners. I would have said, you're out of your mind. You can never, you'll never be able to get that done politically. So I think, I think uh, um, we, we, again, I'm not a policy guy and other people are better, much better at this than I am. But I do think those are the two areas we need to get right. Rusty Reno, thanks for joining me. All right. Great. Great to be on the show. Hope you enjoy that as much as I did. As I told you, Rusty's got a lot of great ideas. If, if you are not already, you should be a subscriber to First Things, which of course is still in print and has a wonderful online presence as well. Most of all, thinking about Rusty's comment about what Roger Scruton reminds us, which is at the heart of conservatism is gratitude. Thank you for being part of the show and for making it possible. Take care, and we'll be back soon. The Kevin Roberts Show is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. The executive producer is Crystal Kate Bonham. The producer is Philip Reynolds. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and Tim Kennedy. For more information and to subscribe, please visit heritage.org.